Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. I am Esther Kang, an editor at Forth.org, and you're listening to Back and Forth, a monthly conversation series featuring not only our writers and photographers, but also experts, advocates, and Long Beach community members. Now, for those of you who haven't heard of us yet, Forth is a not-for-profit media organization that serves Long Beach and only Long Beach. The all-volunteer publication has been run for the last three and a half years by a collective of artists, writers, community organizers, and journalists. We are fully independent and reader-funded. This week is the last week of May, which is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month and also Mental Health Awareness Month. And it's actually quite interesting that these two line up because statistically, AAPI individuals are less likely to access mental health services than any other racial group. But that's not to say that we have a lack of need for it. Many AAPI are immigrants, working class, refugees, and survivors. And domestic violence, substance and gambling addictions, discrimination, PTSD from colonial violence, generational trauma, language and cultural barriers, academic pressure, these are all pervasive issues. And I haven't even mentioned the ongoing surge in anti-Asian violence stemming from COVID-19. But whether AAPI individuals don't seek help with mental health due to cultural stigma or lack of culturally relevant or sufficient modes of treatment, etc., I think that at the end of the day, we should talk about it. So today, I'm here with two of my brilliant friends in Long Beach, who I invited to shed some light on this matter. June Kalsith, also known as Jumake, is a Thai-American artist, wellness consultant, and storytelling coach. After spending her 20s as an artist and community organizer inside of nonprofit organizations, she found herself seeking an alternative narrative to healing and justice. Curiosity led her back to Thailand, where she studied with a traditional midwife to learn the ways of her ancestors. Today, June facilitates private coaching and group sessions for women and people of color, including birth workers, sexuality educators, therapists, and yoga teachers. Our second guest is Serena Ao, who is a queer, first-generation Chinese-American occupational therapist, arts access advocate, and educator. She's worked with preschool through graduate-level students across the greater Los Angeles area for over 12 years in a variety of non-traditional settings using the lens of engagement with graffiti, street art, murals, and community-based arts to inform her practice of mental health and wellness. Serena has been an advocate for women, LGBTQIA+, and youth artists of color of all abilities and organizations that support them to explore individual, family, and community-based healing through arts practice. I'm so grateful to have both of them on the show today. Let's get started. One of the first questions that I wanted to ask both of you, uh, June and Serena, is what is your personal relationship to mental health? Um, When did it start? Yeah, uh, so my name is Serena L. I am an occupational therapist by practice, um, and I have been a therapist now for uh, almost eight years. Um, but my journey with mental health definitely started very early. I grew up um, as a first-generation Chinese-American in the Pacific Northwest in Tacoma, Washington, Um So there were not a lot of families that looked like mine, and mental health was very rarely discussed in my home. Um, But my mother uh, clearly lived with mental illness, although we didn't have the right words for it. Um, And so by the time that I was in high school, I was pretty familiar with um, 
therapy or seeking out mental health resources, uh, both for myself, uh, for my whole family, uh, and then a lot more acutely as I was an older teenager. Um, when I was an older teenager, I um, came out to my family and had very negative response. Um, I think that uh, sexuality is something that's really not discussed in a lot of families of color and definitely not a Chinese American immigrant family like my own. Um, so uh, I became entangled in a lot of governmental systems that um, seek to support families that are honestly typically a lot of times families of color, low income families, immigrant families. Um, and so I saw a lot of people like myself um, who had had limited access to professional mental health supports um, being provided with an onslaught of supports that didn't necessarily serve um, people the way that they were intended to serve. So um, coming into college, I studied psychology, I studied occupational therapy, I studied social work. Um, I really tried to get as deep into mental health as I could. Um, there was a time where the DSM, which is a very thick <laughs> uh, book uh, that's used to um, categorize psychological disorders, um, was something that I studied intensely until I got out there and really realized that how people resonate with me as a therapist and how I resonate with therapists is meeting people where they're at, um, which is why my style is very casual and lived because I'm trying to reach people who look like me, talk like me, grew up like me, listen to the same music as me, eat the same food as me, have sex with the same kind of people as me, are not ashamed to talk about that like me. Um, and so my new uh, found view on mental health is that it is something that we practice daily. Um, that we become aware of our thoughts and how they pass daily um, from mindfulness practice in the smallest of ways to um, applying mindful living to everyday practice um, is something that's really important to me. And um, I know that my journey with mental health will never end. And that's very comforting. To me. Mm -hmm about who I am and my connection to mental health. Yeah. Thank you for that. What about you, Jen? I don't come from the world of therapy, at least in the Western sense, but I come more from the world of personal development, which even the term personal development can be problematic because we speak so much about self-care without acknowledging how much we need collective care and that community accountability in in being able to step back without shame. So my life prior to doing coaching, and I'm just going to say it in quotes, personal development work was in community organizing as well as direct services. I have a background in uh, being a rape crisis hotline counselor working in domestic violence and the field of sexual violence prevention 
where I did a lot of violence prevention workshops in the Long Beach community, as well as parts of Orange County within the Southeast Asian community. And something that was very prevalent for me and my role, which was to target the Southeast Asian population in being able to pick up the 1-800 hotline to seek safety and support was that they instead wanted to come to me because there was that no like and trust factor. Why would I want to call an anonymous hotline when I can just talk to you? For sure. And there was a point where it got so overwhelming. And I was also questioned by my agency, who is it that I really work with? Do I work for them or do I work for the community? How come we don't see the numbers increasing on the hotline, which is very nuanced when you are working within the nonprofit industrial complex, when a lot of the funding comes from data. And if we can actually have evidence of how much our community is in need of these resources, but how can you gather the data when the community doesn't want to participate, when they have felt so incredibly harmed by the system mm -hmm. and all that we've known prior to immigrating to the United States was community accountability. And it doesn't mean that working within communities, especially outside of the criminal justice system, is all rainbows and sunshine either, especially if we are not taught how is it to communicate, how is it to have healthy relationships. And while we can talk about mental health in our communities, I think that it's so important that we look at the root causes and how white supremacy and even the trauma of immigrating to the United States has taken a toll on our mental health, which can then feel like it is an individual struggle when in reality it is a collective experience that we have come to pathologize. Mm -hmm. You can only go and seek a certain individual to gain help. But what about the elders who garden and the ones who find healing in the kitchen? And there's so, or just taking a walk in nature. And that's not to negate therapy, at least talk therapy, but to also recognize the ways that our community has always had the resources on how to heal. But where is the funding to support what it is we are already doing mm. and to grow that trust from there so that hey, if you want to talk about it, there's a space to do so. So uh, I didn't last at that agency very long. And that propelled me to this new path of doing life coaching where most of my clients right now happen to be Asian American and biracial mm. women woman of color and many of my clients also happen to be therapists which i think is so beautiful because we're not in competition we know that we will thrive when we go so much further together but many of my clients who are therapists come to me because they are feeling this pull to reconnect with their ancestral healing practices but because of the trauma and the stigma that has come with higher education and just society in general, where our ancestors were literally punished for holding on to these practices, there is this intergenerational trauma of 
if I bring this into my healing, what if I get punished? What if I get persecuted? What if I get in trouble? Hmm. And it's not anything new that we're teaching. So much of this is just a remembrance and a reclamation. Right. But I feel like if we can include more spirituality and the ways that our ancestors once healed one another, we could go so much further as a community when it comes to being able to talk about these issues that we instead hold inside because we're afraid of of being seen as uh as crazy which is a whole nother layer because those who did have mental health challenges who today are institutionalized for it are the ones who we would go to for healing. We we would see them as the bridge between the ancestral and the physical realm. We would praise them versus cage them up. I wanted to touch on what you said too about community. Do you think that there is a benefit of seeking out one-on-one therapy versus a larger form of therapy in community? Yeah, I think when we think about talk therapy, um, this could be a lot of different types of therapy. I'm My first go-to is cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. Um, I don't think that cognitive behavioral therapy is the only way at all. I mean, I really believe in the idea of occupation, touching off of what June was saying. Um, so as an occupational therapist, uh, we believe in occupation or using daily activities as therapy. Um, that is really my platform and where I come from. And I really solidly feel very passionately about this. Um, for myself, it's been art. Um, I also very much hear the gardening and other um, really sensory rich activities where you're getting to feel the soil, you're outside, you are getting visual inputs, tactile inputs, just sensory inputs that really make your body feel alive and hinge on the mind-body connection um, and can really have a spiritual basis as well because um, occupation isn't going to do the same thing for everyone. It really has to be personally meaningful for you to have that therapeutic value. And so where I find people actually having feeling the most held and supported is group occupation. The idea of being able to do something together to uh, conceptualize how you're going to do it, to know that you are in community with others and performing a task together, and then the feeling of mastery and teamwork when you all get it done. Um, that's why, you know, myself, I know a lot of people know me around town for community murals and for always being a supporting player in uh, social justice related murals because that occupation brings me a lot of joy and uh, positive mental health benefits the same way that I really believe in group gardening and group cooking and um, that these can, these interventions can really be just as effective as the individual cognitive based Mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy, because June is totally right. We don't exist in isolation from each other and really whatever you're going through not everyone is going to be able to express through uh expressive communication but to know that uh linguistic capital is real uh being able to express yourself thoroughly in words and language is also a privilege 
Um, yes. So understanding that not everyone is going to be able to find that solace in bouncing back verbally back and forth with mm -hmm. another. I mean, I think of like a personal example from uh, when I was younger and my family was put in, you know, court mandated uh, therapy because we were going through it really while I was coming out. Um, I don't think that this is a unique experience. I know so many queer people who have been through this, but because of stigma and shame, do not speak about um, the state provided supports, supports uh, that mm -hmm. we received. Um, but I definitely remember a social worker, a new graduate social worker coming to my house to um, administer the services. And one of the first things she said to my Chinese immigrant, Cantonese speaking father and mother and myself was, let's all hold hands, look each other deep in the eye, the <laughs> one thing you love about each other. And I was like, girl, I'm not even trying to hold your hand. I'm definitely <laughs> not trying to hold my dad can and look deep in his eyes like this is just not culturally informed right right um, practice yeah. because i just knew that i don't know any chinese household where that would go down at all <laughs> so um so you know examples like that of well-intended interventions really falling flat and at times also being harmful uh because without knowing me or my family's history asking me to be physically intimate or hold hands with someone uh, was really off the mark. Right. So uh, bouncing off of that, I wanted to ask, as therapists and healers, what is your own experience working with AAPI individuals? June, I know you sort of touched on that, um, working with um, other Southeast Asian folks. But Serena, you just said that, you know, it can sometimes help to have a therapist that looks like you and has similar uh, a similar background as you but i'm curious to know like have you had like a lot of rapport with somebody who is uh asian american or pacific islander and you know they something clicked differently for them because you look like them i would say for me a lot of my community work is more centered with asian americans um as far as my therapy work i worked mostly in south central uh los angeles in the watts area so as far as just Asian American demographics, they were a bit slimmer there. Um, and also working within the public, um, I've always worked within public systems until this year. Uh, and within the public system, not a lot of Asian American parents, uh, again, because of stigma, are willing to put their children into what's called special education, even if that's only to receive mental health supports. Um, and I think the shame of being considered um, special or maybe having um, a cognitive disability um, is what they'll associate the idea of special education with, even if we're talking about social emotional supports and not a cognitive um, deficiency. I think a lot of Asian American parents are reluctant to put their children into these services. Um, as far as my community-based work. Uh, I have collaborated with a lot of Asian American artists. Um, most recently, I helped support a mural in Los Angeles Chinatown um, after the Atlanta shootings. Um, and it was a really large piece that said stop Asian hate crimes. Um, and most people know me as a working therapist and a working artist. And so um, I separate my personal, you, you know, confidentiality, protected therapy time with 
myself being evident in the community that I'm working on my own mental health too. I'm working to work on community-based Asian American and Pacific Islander mental health too. Um, so I do feel a lot of artists called to connect with me um, because I like to paint about the Asian American experience and particularly about Asian American mental health. What about you, Jim? Uh, similar to what Serena was mentioning, I cannot claim myself a therapist because I'm not licensed, but the same goes for anybody who is in the service field or the healing field, whether you call yourself a therapist or a life coach or a Reiki healer or whatever other title we want to place on ourselves. If we are in the role of holding space for others, when you are able to make that connection, which for me foundationally begins with stories, mm -hmm. then I feel like that's where so much the healing and transformation already happens. And one of the things that I say to my students is that shame dies in places where our stories are shared. And so while receiving individual support, whether that's through coaching, mentorship, or therapy can be extremely effective. I have my own support as well. When we're able to come together and have these conversations as a community, that's where so much of the stigma gets melted away. Yes. And that has been my experience over and over again, uh, because the bulk of my work happens to be in group settings. And the one-on-ones -on are effective for when people are not quite ready to share their story publicly yet. They just need to get it out of their bodies and their nervous systems to first know, do I have a story that's worth even sharing? And is it safe for me to tell? Am I going to get in trouble? What if somebody comes after me? So a lot of this is, I feel, a process of co-regulation. We talk a lot about self-regulation, but this is why it's so crucial that we are doing our own healing work as well. And I don't want us to equate healing as something that's meant to be an agonizing struggle. And while there is the dark night of the soul, there's also pleasure and there's also joy. And I feel like it's a dance of being able to feel all of those emotions without allowing it to become our core identity. And I feel that that's where practices like mindfulness are very effective. And if we want to take it beyond mindset and mental health, we need to incorporate embodiment because the body remembers mm -hmm. so many of the ailments that we are experiencing physiologically are actually just stories that are creating stagnation. And so I have witnessed over and over again in the process of supporting people with being able to birth their stories that I have literally witnessed cysts, fibroids, endometriosis, other ailments that become activated. And while we can go to the doctor or the hospital, hospital and have that thing cut out or take medicine so that we no longer need to feel the pain, what does it look like to witness whatever is causing the suffering face to face? address it, tell the story that's coming up for us, the one that may be causing us suffering, and then rewrite that. And when we do that, we are literally changing our biology in the process. So I feel like 
occupational therapy is one beautiful example of what it's like to be able to work with the body, especially for folks who are not comfortable being able to talk it out. Because as you mentioned, that is an absolute privilege to know how to even speak the English language to be able to articulate what it is you do, which is why we have song, we have dance, we have music, we have the creative arts, which for me, what colonialism has done to many of us is that we have equated creativity as a means of consumption. Mm. It is only art if it is worthy of being bought and sold when the artists were the first healers of the community. They were the ones who preserved the legacies for the following generations. And I feel like this is what we get to come back to because what is everything around us other uh, everything around us our reality other than the stories that we maybe have been telling ourselves the stories that have been passed down to us as well as the stories that these institutions have ingrained in us to make us believe that maybe we're not worthy that we're not allowed to seek out help i just wanted to jump in because um Occupational therapy is great, but I also think I want to really celebrate June and storytelling because um, just from my Serena life, I wanted to highlight that actually four days after the Atlanta attacks, I was with June at a workshop together uh, through uh, the nonprofit that I work at, Compound Long Beach. Um, June came and had a session on your story medicine. And for myself, uh, you know, none of us could have predicted that we would be two Asian Americans facilitating a, a workshop about connecting with your ancestors so soon after such a triggering attack while we are still acutely processing what is going on and then holding space for other people and their ancestor stories and each of our individual ancestor stories um, in that acute moment. Um, and that's really where I highlight that therapists are people too, mm -hmm. going through it. And I um, think a lot of times that healing, it is, you know, ripping off that Band-Aid, it is going to hurt. Um, in that moment, being called to share my own story of my family, which, I, you know, I'm estranged from my family. So um, thinking about protecting Asian elders while I was still not quite able to visualize what elder of my own family I was thinking mm -hmm. about. So talking to June that day so soon after uh, was really cathartic for me of telling this story to myself, uh, mm. telling the story, sure, to an audience. And, you know, I've gotten very comfortable over the years with sharing uh, my personal trauma and how it's led me to my joy. Um, but in that moment of retelling that story in the wake of something happening across our nation and world, um, I didn't realize that um, telling my story was going to affect me in that way. Um, I had a lot of people from the group say, you know, it's really inspiring to see that the person leading the group is also going through it yeah. <laughs> because um, we are not superheroes, uh, therapists, healers, wellness providers. All of us have um, our own mental health and um, need to exist in community with each other too. Yeah, I. I actually am now seeking therapy 
to as a compliment to the coaching that I get and the mentorship because while I receive so much support when it comes to my business and my spirituality I I know that my coping mechanism is to work is to pour so deeply into people until it's too late until I'm so burnt out and I'm bitter and I'm resentful and I see that this is a pattern that I have also learned from my parents because whenever I ask my parents how is it that they're feeling about everything that's happening my mom is all like that's a distraction mm -hmm. I'm just trying to survive right now I can't focus on that and I was like oh I see where I get that from now and because I am often in the role where I am the space holder that it's so true I need to constantly do work to refill my own cup so right now it's been hot yoga I just found a new teacher and she happens to be Asian American and it's so funny because the past three classes I've done with her we are the only Asian Americans in the room and today she just whispered to me how she's about to teach at another studio but she would love for me to be there because they're all white people. <laughs> and I'm like I see you sister and I see her as elder goals because she's 49 and she looks mm. so amazing and I just find mentors and teachers in the most unlikely places but it's like wow I prayed for you and here you are in this right moment so for me, my coping mechanism is not only leaning so deeply into service, but it's also sweating. I just sweat as if everything that is coming out of my body is a puddle of tears. And yeah. oftentimes that, that does the work, but healing <laughs> is not an end destination. Mm -hmm. It is an everyday practice that we return to over and over and over again. It's not, oh, I'm healed and I'm done. It's, oh, something triggered me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like often in social justice communities, we will punish others for awakening the triggers within us. And ever since stepping into this work, it's like bring on the triggers, I want to see what other parts of myself have yet to heal. Mm -hmm. What was that? And how is it that I can recognize what is and what isn't mine to deal with? And so it, it's so crucial. I have found for myself that because I pour so deeply into the people that I work with and the projects that I commit to, that really so much of my work is just creating the space that my younger self needed. Mm. The one that didn't judge me for not knowing, the one that wanted to be able to share my story without fear of what the consequence would be and the one who wished that there was somebody who looked like me being able to hold that space and I invite the people that I work with to go forth and do the same not from a savior mentality like I gotta go and rescue all of these people who are suffering but from a place of service how what is the story that I am going to tell what is what is the story that others will 
will share of me and how it is I chose to show up in this lifetime because we all have our place. We all have our role right now. And it doesn't mean that everybody needs to go forth and become a healer. I think it's important to acknowledge that you existing in this moment is, is a radical act within itself. Welcome back. You are listening to 99.1 FM KLBP. Back to the show. I know for me, I'm really leaning into joy. I'm yeah. really leaning into permission to have joy. In the beginning, I gave myself permission to have grief because I actually don't think that grief is accessible to everyone. I think a lot of people don't have time to grieve. I think people don't have money to grieve. I don't think mm-hmm. people don't have... Um, the expressive 
people don't give themselves permission to grieve. Um, and uh, in my grief, I let everyone feel it. I let my work feel it. I let my friends feel it. I let random people who had advice on the internet feel it. Um, <laughs> because I think as, as women and as people of color, you can easily be put into a box of being that angry girl at work yelling about Asian things. And I'm like, that's me, what's up? Because I really wanted to hold space for my own emotions and say all of them are valid and okay. All of them are valid and okay. And um, I think particularly this year with the pandemic, uh, it's been very confusing to figure out who deserves joy, who gets to um, be smiling and happy during this year of pandemic. And I really agree with uh, June that joy is a radical act. Just existing is a radical act. They don't want the bisexual, queer, Chinese American, immigrant ESL person to be a therapist and thrive. What's up? So really <laughs> being your biggest cheerleader, um, being my own biggest cheerleader and celebrating joy in this time and reminding others that they deserve joy as well, particularly um, queer Asian joy is something I care about a lot. And I, I think about my life and how much of it I would want to be joyful. Like if I got to see my life on a pie chart scale, how much of that time would I want to be happy? Well, for me, most of it, if not as close to all of it as I can get. I know that life is always going to have its ups and downs, but choosing joy on a daily basis when I wake up, because I choose it. And I think that people can too. That's where I have really been centering my coping um, and also in just artistic expression of channeling my anger into something that is not necessarily words that people can appreciate on a visual level or a tactile level immediately. Um, that's where I've been centering my healing. It was a period, I think it was like late January, early February when, you know, every day there was a new post on Instagram about uh, an Asian grandpa getting punched out or whatever. Like the first thing I would do when I would wake up was check my phone to see what was new that day. And it put me in such a deep, just a dark place to see that every day. Cause I wanted, I don't know, maybe that was my coping mechanism. Just be aware of like what's happening and to share it as like widely and loudly as I could to make people care and pay attention. But yeah, that ended up being just me choosing to feel that way every single day, waking up and choosing, you know, anger and sadness, you know, and yeah, I think that's, that's a really good reminder that you bring to choose joy, uh, despite the odds or in spite of the odds. Looking forward, what do you think we can do to uplift our API communities and help with the healing process, um, in light of everything that we've talked about? I think touching on what June shared what you shared as well, Esther, about, you know, watching the videos of violence, which has really been a long time for many of us now. Um, you know, those videos are created, and I know particularly when they first started coming out, they almost always depicted a dark-skinned, melanated black person mm -hmm. attacking an Asian person. And the narrative that that created really pitted 
the idea that these two movements that Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate were at somehow at odds with each other or in competition with each other when really we are all working towards our collective liberation, or at least I'd like to think so. Yeah. Um, and so those videos and just the consumption of social media driven videos, you know, I, I know myself the frustration of just feeling unseen, feeling invisibilized. Um, there is that urgency of, well, maybe if we get this imagery out there, then somehow that would contribute, that would make the attacks stop. When really we've seen images of violence against black bodies our entire lives, our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, we've all seen endless images of black pain and violence. And that has not contributed really any to the cessation of violence against melanated bodies. So uh, really being mindful as to who is creating these narratives and why um, has led me to eliminate watching videos of violence, sharing videos of violence, or following online pages that would share this content because it's not serving me. It's truly not serving me and uh, re-traumatizing myself watching videos of elders um, doesn't do anything to cement that it's ex that it exists. We all know it exists. I don't need to watch a video to be convinced. Um, and what does it say about the human psyche that we need to watch a video to be convinced that um, what people are saying their hurt is or their pain is is real? Sure. Uh, so I really just caution everybody, and I know that this is much easier said than done, but to really limit your social media consumption, uh, particularly at night, you know, that mind-body connection, you're just trying to go to sleep after watching such a thing. I know that I have a phone cup. I bought myself a cute mug. It has a mama <laughs> on it. And whenever I'm not using my phone, I put my phone in the phone cup. Where <laughs> so that I'm not glued to my phone because it gets... These things, they make them addictive for a reason, yeah. you know? Um, advertisers love when you scroll and watch violent videos for a whole night. Yeah, that's a really good point. I got to get me a phone cup. Yeah, I loved that. You're, you're so right about that, how these devices are, yes, while they are really great at keeping us well-informed about everything that's happening, it can turn into a doom scroll. And what I would say to folks is to release the shame from feeling like you need to carry any of this by yourself. If you cannot find a community where you can be in practice with, where you can share stories with, where you can create new memories with, then create one for yourself. And if you're looking for a community, my friends and I, every other week, we have a meditation group for people of color, and we just use it as an opportunity to sit with all of the shit that is coming up for us in those 20 to 30 minutes without any judgment. Because I feel like oftentimes, as somebody who comes from the world of community organizing, the only times we would gather is to react based off of something that just happened. And then we're so quick to strategize and then we get burnt out because we feel like we're not doing enough. And, it, and it's so easy to feel like an imposter in the movement space, especially it just feeling like an, an imposter in general and to feel so helpless with everything that's 
happening versus recognizing that you having those moments of being still and sitting with the discomfort and the pain is often where the healing happens because you recognize that, oh, it'll pass. This is just a feeling. But the more that we try to run from it by busying ourselves with doing things, and I am definitely not absolved from this, the more that we just further suppress it. And then in the long run, what does it turn into? It turns into other things within our body that we then forgot about because we've done such a good job at dissociating or distracting ourselves. And so in that time, just and even if you don't do it in a community, even if you just do it yourself, I know it's so hard. So many people say, I cannot meditate because I don't know how to sit still. And what my teachers would say, well, that's probably why you got to do this. And if you can't sit still, then dance, do things to get all of that tension out of our body. Most of the stories and the tension that we are carrying is in our hips. So do something that allows you to move and to groove to music. Find a new hobby. That's another thing. If we look at trauma, trauma is is tension in the body. And while we cannot entirely get, we, we can't get rid of our trauma. That's the truth. It's in our body. But the way that we can can heal that is by creating new memories. And in creating new memories and, experience, and experiences is when we are rewiring our nervous system to know that there is so much more than the pain that we are carrying. And I also want to name that, uh, I mean, dependent on whenever this airs, uh, in addition to being able to sit still with whatever it is that's coming up for us and meeting it with such radical love and compassion, we read an excerpt from a book, typically a Dharma reading. Right now, we're reading from Love and Rage by Lama Rod Owens. It's mm -hmm. such a beautiful book. And then we just share. We just share whatever's coming up from our hearts without the need to perform or prove how smart we are. We're not here to give advice, but just to share stories and to end it off with gratitude. Because I know that it can feel like it's spiritually bypassy whenever we're talking about love and gratitude. And there is scientific evidence that proves the more that we lean into gratitude, the the more that we are expanding our frequencies of love and abundance our ancestors knew this that our hearts literally emanate this frequency that can extend out as far as like 10 feet and even further when we are sitting doing this work to just come back home to our bodies to this vessel so that is my invitation for you to either find a community or to create one and to move your body while also finding opportunities for total stillness without judgment. And that is all the time we have this week. Special thanks to our guests Serena Ao and June aka June McKay for sharing their stories and their wisdom with us. And also a big shout out to the team at KLBP, and especially to Gabe Farrell as our engineer. If you value truly independent local media, please consider donating to both KLBP and Forth.org. This has been Back and Forth. My name is Esther Kang. Take care.
currently experiencing a systems failure in our security network. Time travel volunteers, please stand by, and we will be in preparation for our journey one day into the future. You notice I'm using a little bit of...